Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's hard-hitting Axis Arrows. Learn more about Easton's cutting-edge and fuse carbon arrow technology today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Berg. Welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time out of your day to be with us. Uh, today's topic, today's show is going to be a really interesting one for anybody who loves the the uh, year-round bow hunting lifestyle, deer hunting. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, shed antler hunting and uh, doing it in a really special and unique way uh, with a canine companion and a shed antler hunting dog. Uh, I recently had the great privilege to uh, get a new family uh, friend uh, and a shed hunting dog from a gentleman by the name of Roger Sigler. Roger lives out in Missouri. He's a pioneer in the training and use of shed antler hunting dogs and Roger is on the line right now. Roger, I want to thank you for being with me today and for taking some time to help uh, other folks learn about this exciting and growing sport of uh, shed dogs. Awesome. Well, thank you for all the compliments and uh, I hope I, this interview can live up to you, uh, your expectations. Well, I'm sure it will, Roger, and uh, I'm sure we can work in you know, some good anecdotes about Goldie as we go through this, but, you know, okay. just just to start off, give people, you know, a, a brief uh, summary of your background. I mean, you've trained everything from sea lions to chickens, and you've been in the world of animal training for a long, long time. Give folks a brief overview of that, and then go, go ahead right into this whole shed hunting thing and how that kind of came about. Okay, first I'd like to introduce Goldie, who is Christian's dog. For uh, you folks that don't know, yes, he did come to Kansas City, and uh, he has a beautiful red lab. But historically, uh, just one minor correction, uh, my wife and I, we do go to California once a year or so, and we work with the top marine mammal trainers. And while we're out there, they're training sea lions, and we're training horses and dogs and birds and things like that. Okay. So we're working with them. We're not actually work, uh, training the sea lions, but I have trained wild animals. Uh, historic history, um, you have to go back to the to the 60s when I, my wife and I started training professionally. We were in the medical profession, but uh, a lot of animals, we were both uh, grew up on farms, uh, was a kind of a passion for us. So what we would do after work, we would train bird dogs all summer long, and then in the fall, we would take our doctor clients and we would go to Canada where we'd hunt birds up on the prairie. And uh, uh, we, we did that for about 35 years, and it gave us a tremendous background in uh, training uh, bird dogs of all kinds, anything from vicious wire hair, pointing griffins, you name it. Uh, then somewhere along the way, uh, I got involved with a German discipline called Schutzen. And Schutzen is uh, it's, it's bite work, it's tracking, and it's scent work. Uh, if you see a uh, German Shepherd or Belgian Malinois in the back of a police car, it's generally going to be a multi-purpose dog that will do all three of the things I just I just said. Um, I did that for a number of years. I had a, uh, a just an incredible dog that uh, uh, was more like my son than uh, uh, than than a dog. I, I just loved him. Um, then after 9/11, uh, I qualified a dog for 
the federal FEMA search and rescue program. Uh, after I qualified him, I found that uh, if the dog went into the federal program, that it, the dog would uh, belong to the federal government, and uh, I, I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> the government has its hand and everything else, but uh, I didn't want it in my dog. Um, we all, I also, the, the last actual job that I had, uh, I was the head dog trainer at the men's prison in Lansing, Kansas. And uh, I volunteered for that job after I retired. Uh, I, I, I volunteered for a couple reasons. One is that uh, I just love dogs and I wanted to save dogs. And the other was that uh, I'm a Christian and I wanted to have the opportunity to get to talk to the men about my faith in Jesus Christ, a little bit like Tim Tebow, maybe. But uh, it was a it was a great opportunity. The way the program would work is we would go out into the Kansas City community where we would rescue dogs and take them in and put them with the inmates uh, where they'd live 24-7. Uh, during the first year or so of the inmates' training, they would uh, learn to train pet dogs, set down, stay, come to their name, those types of things. Then... Uh, as I graduated out of that, I was looking for a, a more uh, difficult discipline, maybe something like mom dogs or drug dogs. And uh, when I went to the warden to, to uh, ask him about those disciplines for the men, I, I think he thought I was out of my mind. But uh, the antler dog program actually was born out of the Kansas State Prison Program. And, and so, uh, and so it, that kind of, and, and and I remember from a previous conversation that we had that. The idea of even trying to get dogs to look for antlers, that was just kind of a toss-away idea that one of your buddies had kind of thrown out randomly a while back, right? Right, right. It actually happened probably sometime in around 2004, 2005, when uh, I was uh, shed hunting with a buddy of mine, and uh, he said, you train dogs, why don't you train dogs to find these things? And that just was kind of the seed that was planted uh, I really didn't do much about it, probably for a year or so. And my first experiments really were with uh, a German Shepherd and with a pit bull. And uh, I just wanted to see uh, when we started. We weren't really sure what breed to even use. Uh, we suspected that it would be labs, but we didn't really know. So we experimented. We tried a beagle. We tried a Golden Retriever, Chesapeake Bay, Wirehair Pointing Griffins. Uh, I started uh, six or seven uh, German Shorthairs last year. And I had a couple that, that worked pretty nice, but for the most part, uh, they're bird dogs. And, and that's uh, what they were bred for. A butterfly flies by or a pigeon or whatever. And, you know, their, their heads are in the sky and away they go. But back to the prison program, uh, the way the program would work, as I said, would We'd go out and we would uh, uh, get these dogs from animal shelters, put them in with the inmates. And in 2005, we rescued 750 dogs and put them into and then adopted them out to the public. So it was a, it was a really a, a great, great program. And I have to put that in because I think that it's a, a kind of an interesting story that uh, you know the inmates were were able to change their lives with with antler dogs. So, so you'd bring in these rescue dogs and have the prisoners kind of bring them up to speed in terms of obedience and socialization, and then they'd be prime candidates to find new families. That's right, yeah. And so how did the, the shed antler hunting kind of dovetail with all that? 
Well, uh, if if you're ever going to get to be a real trainer, sooner or later you get beyond just you know teaching simple stuff. Uh, for example, you may want to train for uh, uh, the blind or disability dogs, or you may want to train bomb dogs or drug dogs or uh, search and rescue dogs. And those are higher disciplines in which you take these dogs that have the general obedience. If they have the other skills that are required, uh, then they could go into these more advanced fields. It's a bit like uh, the uh, CNI people. What they'll do is they will uh, raise, they will receive a litter of puppies when they're eight weeks of age, and they'll put them out with foster uh, parents for a year, and then the dogs will come back to the institute where they're tested, and if they meet the qualifications, then they go on to be. A, a, a some type of a uh, disability some type of a disability dog. So we're basically doing the same thing with, with these dogs, in which not not every dog can do this work. Uh, as I said, you know, we think that the lab is a dog of choice, but not just every lab will even make it in, in the program. You're looking for a very specific kind of lab that will do the work. And as, as I explained, as I lecture, I try to put this in terms people can understand is if you had a small business and uh, you had two children and one of them was really great in math and the other one was a great athlete and you'd been wanting to bring one of these kids, one of your children, into the business and one Monday morning when you went into work, your bookkeeper had just quit. Which one of the two children would you bring in to, to, to take that role? Would it be the athlete or the, the math person, the math child? Well, of course, it would be the kid that was good at math. And we're really doing the same things. As we start testing these dogs, we're looking for dogs that have very specific skill sets. And the higher these dogs grade on their skill sets, the more likely they're to be a really a top candidate. And uh, the one thing that I, that I can't uh, uh, say enough is that this sport is all about the quality of your dog. The higher the quality of your dog, the better the end result is going to be. And just like in any dog sport, that's the way that it is. And also, when you think about it, you know, if, if you want to hunt rabbits, you're, you're not going to get uh, a poodle. You're going to get a beagle. If you want a dog to work cattle, you're not going to get a, a German Shepherd. You're going to get a, a Border Collie or Blue Heeler. Mm-hmm. If you want a dog to bite, you're not going to get a Cocker. You're going to get a German Shepherd. So... These dogs have been bred for individual traits for hundreds of years now, and so with the lab, you have most all of the qualities that are required to get the job done. So what are the, what are the key qualities of the Labrador Retriever that make it so well-suited for hunting shed antlers? And then beyond that, Roger, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing with you know, some selective breeding with the dogs that you found to be high quality to kind of accentuate those traits? Sure. You're really looking at about three or four different drives, okay? One of them we call it drives or aptitude. One of them is retrieve, but retrieve is, is way down the line because you can train a dog to retrieve, okay? The, the next thing you're looking at is you're looking at... Uh, uh, their nose and what kind of nose they have. Uh, you're looking for hunt. Hunt is actually the most uh, important drive in in the whole sport because if you've got a great dog and he just wants to walk along beside you, which a lot of labs do, 
then it doesn't really benefit you because, you know, you can see the hornets in front of you yourself. So you're looking for a dog that's really high in hunt. And uh, then the, the last thing you're looking at is, you know, is trainability. So you're looking at a bunch of different things, and we grade those dogs on a scale from 1 to, one to 10. And, uh, uh, once again, hunt is, is by far the most important because you can use that to mold these others to some degree. Mm-hmm. And once you find these dogs, we've uh, trained hundreds of these dogs and have them in 38 states. And so we've looked at lots of different kinds of dogs. We started off with hunt test dogs. That's our retriever sport. We looked at uh, field trial dogs. We looked at just uh, hunting dogs. We looked at uh, family dogs, you know, just a a lot of different combinations. And what we found was is it's not about the price that you pay for the dog uh, because you can can take a litter that that you're paying $5,000 per pup for and in that litter, if there's five, you will have two that are probably going to excel. You're going to have one that is going to maybe make it, and then you're going to have two that might find a few horns, but they're never going to meet the standard that the other two are that are the higher quality within that same litter. So price doesn't really uh, have a great contribution to uh, their overall skills. Now, to put that in proper perspective, when we first started this uh, almost six years ago now, um, I used to say that I thought a really a quality dog would, when you went hunting, for everyone that you found, they would find one. And part of the reason for that is that you may be walking in CRP where the grass is up to your waist, mm-hmm. and your dog is down in the grass. You look out at the bare field 20 yards ahead of you, and you see a horn on the ground. Now, the dog can't see that, but what you're going to do is you're going to work the dog around downwind uh, into the antler, and hopefully what will happen is he'll find the offside going to the one that you can see, so you're working as a team. Mm. Well, about three years ago, I trained a great yellow dog for a cranberry grower in Wisconsin, and this was an outstanding dog. And for every horn that I'd find, this dog would find six or seven. I mean, he was just that much better than the others. Then two years ago, we took a young 14-month-old dog to Canada where we hunt horns up there in the spring. And when we're up there, a lot of people might find this kind of hard to believe, but we'll average about 35 horns a day. Now, the reason for that is that up north, the deer yard up. So you may find... Uh, during the winter, 500 deer in a 100-acre field where they're all e- either in there uh, eating off grain piles or mixing with cattle, those kinds of things. So mm. if you have that many deer, you have uh, opportunity for a lot of horns there. And so uh, getting back to the story, we went to Canada with this 14-month-old dog, and the first day we found a few horns. The second day we found 34 horns. This dog found 27 of them. I mean, wow. he was, he's, just, he's just an incredible animal. So it really it gets down to the quality of your dog. Now, to maintain that quality, what we're doing is that uh, when we find these really outstanding dogs, like the dog I just described, of the males, uh, first thing we'll do is we'll pull semen from them, and then we will neuter them. Because if you have a male... Sooner or later, he's going to be wetting on everything. He's going to, his mind is just not going to be on the job. And when you neuter him, 
okay, it brings them back, and they can really concentrate on on their job at hand. And uh, all of the uh, the modern medicine and veterinary medicine says that neutering and spading greatly uh, improves the health of the dog mm-hmm. and, and, and increases the other, many of the other qualities that are really uh, neat for this or needed for this kind of work. And, and once you put this kind of story form, if you have this male, okay, and you're training drug dogs and you're in an airport, you can't let him be wet on everything and you can't let him lose his interest in what he's doing. It's too important of a job. So we neuter him. Then if we have a really an outstanding bitch, what we'll do is we will sell that bitch, but we'll enter into a breeding agreement with the new owner that upon the, sec- her, the, the bitch's second season, we will ship semen to wherever they are in the country, and they will raise the puppies, and then we will buy all the puppies back from them. So it's almost kind of an investment for the person who's buying, buying sure. the pup. Uh, they, they spend the money up front, but they can get it on the back end. And that's the way we... we uh, retain the, uh, the the lineage that we want to work with them. And just like there's hunt test dogs and field trial dogs, a, uh, we have what we think is a uh, antler dog line of dogs. And as the sport grows and on down the line, it, 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 we will have more and more of these dogs to, to fill those. Uh, sure. Uh, so, you, uh, fill that so you have a, you have sort of a, a semi-regular uh, stream of arrivals at your farm there in in Smithville, Missouri, and uh, of which Goldie, of course, was was one of those dogs that you take in right. when they're eight weeks old, and typically you'll spend another eight weeks uh, working with those dogs before they go to their permanent homes. Tell me about the the foundation that you give these shed dogs in terms of training, and then. Uh, we'll jump from there into what the owners have to do to continue with that after they get home with their new dog. Sure, sure. You know, one of the other drives that that I did mention that is social skills because you want a dog that is uh, I'll, I call I'll call it a, a stand-up dog, a dog that you know when uh, uh, a gun goes off, it's not going to dive under your truck, or when uh, a, a little kid a baby pulls its ear, it's not going to growl at it, uh, or uh, you could take it into school, uh, and just all of the qualities that I, you know, are really a good companion. Mm-hmm. Needs because most all these dogs go into homes, and I think uh, Goldie, uh, uh, I received a, a wonderful Christmas card from uh, Chris's wife describing how Goldie waits at the at the door for the kids to come home from school, and how it's how she's just melted into the family, and and how they, you know, how much that really means to her uh, to have. A companion there. She bragged a little bit. She said that when uh, Chris is at home, that uh, she lets it all sleep in her lap. So, uh, <laughs> well, I think she but, does uh, it when I'm home now too, Roger, because <laughs> that dog is usually in bed with us as soon as we get in bed at night, and uh, uh, she's pretty spoiled. But uh, yeah. the, you told me that you couldn't give her too much love, so I think we haven't ruined her yet. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I tell all these these owners they they say you know well, we we don't let the dog uh, sleep in the house or on the furniture and I, and I, I believe I understand that but two weeks after they get the dog uh, they'll they'll call me and they say well you know uh, somehow or another uh, you know she's wormed her way into our life and into our bed or into our chair or her riding around in the truck with us all day long but you know that that's what we want 
So you're, you're looking for these dogs, getting back to the storyline, you're looking for these dogs that have really good social skills. And so when we take them at eight weeks of age, okay, we're doing a series of things to determine on down the road, you know, the, quality, the, the level at which the dog is going to finish up. So we start them with their obedience, and we teach them all of their, their initial obedience, set down, stay, come to their name, come to whistle, socialize them a great deal, and at the same time, we're testing them for their, their antler skills, and we housebreak them. And when they're somewhere around uh, four months of age, and we just have determined that you know, this dog is, is, a, is a candidate, then the new owner actually has to come to Kansas City, spend two days with us, where we train the new owner to train his dog and take it to the next level. Uh, I like to think that we train dogs and we train people to train their dogs. And uh, there's there's no secrets, okay? When when someone comes and stays with us, we've had over 500 people in the last three years come and stay with us uh, from all over the country. Uh, now, when I say 500, that may be a family, husband, wife, three kids, because we encourage everyone to come because this is a, uh, I believe, antler hunting is a, is a family sport uh, that, where you can take you know your kids, your wife. And you, it's like a great big Easter egg hunt. Everybody loves it, and uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and so, like I said, we're, it's a family thing. We encourage the whole family to come, and uh, so we work under the premise that a human baby can learn almost any number of languages by the time they're five years old. We believe that a puppy, by the time it's 12, 13 weeks of age, should know and understand all the obedience it's going to need for the rest of its life. So we take them through all of the initial obedience stages and test them for their other drives that we're wanting to see. And then the new owner comes. Now, that's that's the started dog, okay? And uh, we sell started dogs. We sell intermediate dogs. If intermediate dog is a dog that's already proven himself as a, through the puppy levels, is now already hunting horns in the field. The only difference between them and a fully trained dog is field experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the puppies, I, I did, uh, didn't give a price. The puppies at uh, uh, 16 weeks of age, they'll be $2,000. And that includes, that's the whole package, okay, including your stay with us. Uh, and you get a good breakfast. You get a good breakfast with that, Roger, and a and and, and a free antler dog's hat. So it's it's actually a pretty good deal. Well, yeah. When, when you leave, yeah, uh, yeah. Chris had a good breakfast. Uh, breakfast is. I I didn't think he was ever going to stop eating, but uh, but uh, that, that's a joke, Chris. So you come back and eat with us anytime. But uh, then the next level of dogs, an intermediate dog. And they're generally uh, about six months of age, already having the horns in the field, and uh, they're 3,500. And then a fully trained dog is generally about a year old, and uh, they're 6,500. Now, I'll just touch a little bit about those finished dogs. You know, I love dogs. Uh, I just sent a dog to uh, Texas. Uh, he was a finished dog. His name was Butch. And uh, Butch was a real unusual dog, and then he was a a fabulous horned dog. He was a, a remarkable blood trail dog, and he also was a licensed therapy dog. Now, I spent a year with this dog, okay? I didn't want to sell him. I loved him, okay? So $6,500 is for this dog, and the amount of effort that went into him uh, was, was really nothing. And the guy that got him, he's a, 
uh, a chief of police in a small town in, in Texas, a uh, chief of police in Nassau Bay down there. His name is uh, Chief Joey, and uh, this dog is, is going to be a, a lifetime companion, uh, doing doing lots of things. If, if I know Joey before Butch is done, he'll probably be doing some drug detection work for him. So uh, those are the three levels. Then we also take in outside dogs if they qualify. I've got some really nice outside, <coughs> excuse me, outside dogs here right now that uh, yeah, they qualified, so mm-hmm. they go into the program. Yeah, I know when I was there, you had, I don't know, I think at least three outside dogs, which are, you know, dogs that people already have, and, and they say, uh, you know, that you'd like to, ha- or they'd like to have you do some antler dog training with them, so so people can send their dogs to you, uh, and they can stay, what, anywhere from a couple months to up to a year, huh? Well, it it, it kind of depends. Generally, uh, I've got a, a young dog here right now. The, uh, the gentleman, uh, he's from Florida. His, his dog's name is Pace. Uh, he brought Pace in when Pace was about 14 weeks of age. Okay, We'll keep Pace probably, oh, because it's this time of the year, we'll keep him a couple of months so that when he leaves here, he'll go from here right into horn hunting. But if it was uh, earlier in the year, we'd probably take Pace for uh, a month send Pace home, uh, let him uh, continue his relationship with his family. Uh, then Pace would come back sometime uh, in, say, December or January for another 30 to 60 days and then go right into spring horn hunting. So he leaves our facility and goes uh, right, uh, right to work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then I, I have uh, two other dogs. We train dogs for a lot of uh, military guys or ex-military guys. I have a a dog here right now, uh, a red dog by the name of Jag. Uh, he's a great dog. He came from a gentleman who did, I think it was six or seven tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, uh, the military guys I, I give a break to because uh, price-wise, uh, you know, they've done so much for us in our country that uh, I just feel it's the least I can do to help them out. Mm-hmm. Then I have a, another dog that I just sent home with a guy who uh, uh, every every 90 days he's going to Afghanistan. So uh, when he's off to Afghanistan, he brings the dog back and we continue the, the training. And this is a, this is kind of a regular thing with uh, these uh, either military or ex-military guys. Uh, they uh, they really they love the sport and uh, it kind of goes with the uh, with the territory. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great way to. To extend your season, obviously, and and just uh, gives you a great excuse to get out into the field with your dog and and get some exercise and and you never know, you know, the a really great treasure of a of a trophy antler could be just around the next bend in the trail or over the next ridge. So it's great in that respect. Let's jump into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of the actual work that the dog is doing out there in the field. I mean. Um, basically you know when you look at one of these finished dogs and i know this from from being out there with you goldie certainly isn't isn't finished at this point but you look at some of these more experienced dogs and they're actually i mean if i had to describe it in a nutshell i'd say that it really looks in practice very similar to what you'd expect a lab to do on a bird hunt where they're quartering out in front of you but instead of looking for birds and smelling for birds they're looking for antlers and smelling for 
antlers. So they've got their eyes on the ground as opposed to, you know, something moving. Obviously, antlers aren't going to get up and run out uh, ahead of you and your dog. Uh, but really just uh, covering an area, scenting, uh, working into the wind, as you had mentioned earlier, all these things are important just as they would be in bird hunting. I'd like you to spend a minute Roger, just talking about the fact that antlers actually do smell, because of course to you and I, we can pick up an antler and give it a sniff. It doesn't really smell like anything to us. Of course, we know that dogs smell a whole lot better than we do, but they actually do have, uh, I guess, quite a smell, and, and you've enhanced that with some experiments with cutting antlers and putting pieces of them in water. And t tell, tell the folks a little bit about that and just how, how well the dogs do at smelling the antlers and how the age of the antlers obviously kind of impacts uh, their aroma, if you will. Okay. Well, uh, when we first started, and the first time I went to Canada, uh, when I, I came back, I would say, I would tell the story about our hunt up there. Okay, the first year we went up, okay, we were going to stay two weeks, but it started snowing after five days. And that first five days, we found 210 sheds, okay? That just kind of gives you a sense as to, you know, the difference that the dog makes. Now... What I said when I came back is that these dogs were just as likely to find one that had been on the ground for five years as one that just fell off the head yesterday. Now, I most people, when I tell them that, would really question it. Well, I had uh, so many people ask me, you know, how are these dogs working? Are they working by sight or are they working by smell? And they're actually working both ways, Okay. These dogs learn to recognize what a horn looks like, and they learn to recognize what they smell like. Now, I had been asked by so many people, do antlers give off scent? I decided to do a little research. And Auburn University has a great drug dog school, and uh, it's a two-part school. The first part is practical application, how dogs learn, and the second part is uh, scent work. So... Uh, one day I called down and was talking to a researcher. I explained to him that uh, I was training antler dogs, and I asked him, do you, do you think that antlers give off scent? And he said, well, yes, well, most everything gives off scent. And I said, uh, you think you could be a little more exact, uh, say, compared to a hot dog, how much would they give off? And he said, well, let me tell you a story, and then maybe you'll understand. He said, we had this cocaine dog that was a, just a great dog in practice. But when we took him out the first time and we were testing him, he walked right past a whole truckload of cocaine. And we couldn't figure out why until we started looking at our research. Our research showed that we had been using, say, one ounce of cocaine from Vietnam. Okay? So what we did after we examined that is we went back and we started changing every variable that we could. Country of origin weight, uh, aged, uh, what, uh, mixed in with other, uh, say, gasoline or diesel or whatever, because you hear about these dogs finding these drugs, uh, these drugs in uh, gas tanks of automobiles. And so we, put as, we did as many variables as we could into the experiment. Then we tested the dog on all these, and then we took the dog out, and the dog, we then had a cocaine dog. Mm -hmm. Well, what what he was trying to tell me was, is that when we train, some days we'll use a moose, 
Some days we'll use an elk. Some days we'll use a whitetail. Some days we'll use uh, a, a, a full rack. Some days we'll use just a tine. Some days we'll use one that just fell off the head. The next day we'll use one that's five years old. Mm-hmm. Now, until a dog experiences all of that, you don't really have a, a an antler dog anymore yeah. than if you're training a drug dog and you te- you train him on cocaine, he's mm-hmm. not really a drug dog until he can experience uh, marijuana, crystal meth. I mean, every drug that you want that dog to identify, you have to train that dog on it. Right. Now, antlers are made up basically of DNA. Now, there's obviously calcium and a bunch of other things, but every antler out there has its own individual scent, just like each and every person has its own individual scent. And to prove that, okay, if you train a dog on just one horn, that dog will look for that one horn. It will walk right past the whole, the whole bunch of other ones laying there on the ground looking for that one. Yeah. And, well, that's, it's a little bit like, yeah, yeah. And, well, you stress that too. And, and I just know too, one thing that, you know, is clear in working with Goldie and, you know, you always stress to have, you know, get yourself basically a whole box full of, of different sheds. And uh, one thing that I think really comes into play when you're working with these dogs is once you've, once you've picked up an antler and tossed it a couple times, there's so much of your scent from your hand touching that antler, there's so much of your dog scent from them slobbering on that antler as they retrieve it back and forth that they start to hunt that and retrieve it, I think, based on those other scents and not necessarily the antler scent. So I think you got to keep constantly introducing fresh antlers into the training program. Yeah, you, you do. And if you understand how a dog's nose works, okay, Okay, if you're driving down the road and you pass an Italian restaurant, you may know that you pass an Italian restaurant. But if your dog buddy is there in the car with you, if he could talk, okay, he would tell you paprika, garlic, ketchup. He would break the recipe down. Now, how does that equate to antler dogs? Okay, we want these dogs to identify antlers. And so we take them through what we call scent discrimination, where we teach them exactly what it is that they're looking for. Okay? Now, in training an antler dog, it's, it's, there, it's a lot more like training a, a bomb dog or a drug dog. You're, you're training scent discrimination. And the guys will call me all the time, and they'll say, I have a dog that I can take an antler, and I can throw it in the weeds 20 times, and the dog will go get it and bring it back do I have an antler dog? And I'll say, no, what you have is a retriever. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, I'm training bomb dogs, and I take a bomb, and I throw it in the weeds 20 times, and the dog goes against it and brings it back to me. Do I have a bomb dog? Well, of course not. You've got a retriever. So you actually have to teach these dogs through a series of games, you know, what it is that they're looking for. And one of the games kind of looks like the old shell game from the carnivals. And that is where the carny guy would take the, the pee and he would put it under the shell and he'd move it around. And then somebody in the audience would have to try to guess for money which one of the shells the pee was under. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we do the same thing with, with dogs. Okay. Well, we may take five-gallon uh, white plastic uh, buckets. We'll put an antler under one and we'll move them around. And the dog has to come up and smell each one of the buckets and tell you which one the horn is under. Now, 
the buckets all have our scent on them, okay? Yeah. And so the only uh, the only difference is that the one has an antler under it. I mean, we'll do we'll we'll do all kinds of variations of that. We'll take a piece of a, a stick, uh, maybe like a broom handle, and we'll put our scent on it. We'll put it under one bucket, okay, and a horn under the other, and the dog comes up and starts to understand. You know, he he has to make the right choice as to which one has the horn under it. And we do that with our training. Our training is called the science of participative training. It's all about rewards. Okay? No choke chains, no electricity, no beating them on any kind of way. Okay, We want these dogs to be independent thinkers and independent hunters. We don't want them to be robots. Okay, If you use what we call adversives, uh, like electricity or choke chains, mm-hmm. you can create a dog that is I mean, a, an absolute perfect gentleman, okay? But it, it's a robot, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it depended upon the degree of sensitivity of the dog. I mean, I've had dogs that were just incredible dogs. But I mean, you just, I mean, you say boo to them, and you might as well uh, 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 beat them with a stick. And so... You still there? Hello? Hello? Hello. We call ours, as I said, the science of participative training. That's hey, Roger. The dog are working as a team. Yes. We. I had yes. a. I had about ten seconds of audio cut out there, which is not a problem. I can edit that. Uh, I can. I can cut this little piece of the interview out when we do our production. But I need you to go back from when you basically said that we call this the science of participative training and pick up from there again. Okay. All okay. Right. Sorry yeah. about that. That's okay. That's okay. We call our method of training the science of participative training. And the reason we call it that is we're working together as a team, the dog and 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 ourselves as we go to the field. Okay? We're a partnership. Now, I can teach a dog with electricity or with choke chains or whatever uh, uh, would force a dog to be enslaved to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that, that's what I think electricity does. You can have a, a perfectly manicured dog that walks at your side, a cat runs in front of it and it won't move. But those are all mechanical things in which you can teach just about any dog to do. But what we're looking for is a dog that will go out and hunt independently without any fear that something bad is going to happen to him, you know, like lightning striking through electric collar. Mm-hmm. And or that he's going to be abused in some ways. These dogs are, are our partners. And so within the science of participative training, okay, we're using the same methods that if you go to California or Florida and you go to SeaWorld and you watch the dolphin trainers train and you hear the whistles blowing, what those whistles really are is a form of communication that the, the trainers are using with the dolphins to get them to do the behaviors that they want. And they're never at that level using any kind of a of uh, ad, what we call adversities or, right. or punishment to get, and, to get and, the dolphin to do it. Yeah, and for anybody who's ever been to SeaWorld and you've seen those shows or you've been to any, if you've ever been to anywhere that had any kind of marine mammals, 
doing a show, what are those trainers doing all the time, Roger? They're constantly throwing fish into the mouths of those animals, right? So if if you're going to train your antler dog with Roger's method, I suggest that you buy stock in a large dairy operation because you're going to need a ready supply of cheese because Roger doesn't go anywhere with these dogs without a little carpenter's apron around his waist that's filled with bits of cheese and he's constantly reinforcing these dogs positively when they do the the behavior that he's looking for and uh, they eat very well at Roger's farm. (laughs) Yes, and and like I said, well, I trained what's called fear-based training for years and years and that was, you know, I was using choke chains and electricity. But close to 20 years ago, I started to see the results once again, like the uh, marine mammal trainers were getting it and I wanted to be able to have the same relationships with my animals that they had with theirs. And, you know, animals like Big Ben, you know, the, the bear. Mm-hmm. If, if you watch in the background, you'll uh, they're using they're using a form of a whistle, but they're using a, a, probably a clicker, which is called a marker, to communicate with 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 the bear. So we're using a, a very uh, advanced method of training that uh, that anyone can learn and understand. Uh, and, and apply to their dog. That's the reason we want people to come in. And we sell training videos, and in the training video, it shows uh, our video runs about an hour, and it shows exactly what we're doing. We take a 12-week-old puppy, and we take it through its first hunt, and uh, uh, you can see, uh, you know, what what we're experiencing uh, with our dogs, so you can carry it over to yours. Mm-hmm. And I'd be remiss if, if I didn't uh, uh, bring my wife and daughter into this because our, our training facility is a family operation as well. Uh, my wife, Sharon, has trained with uh, with me from the very beginning back in the 60s, and my daughter, Amy, has now been with us about five or six years, and uh, she's a world-class trainer uh, on, her, on her own. So um, it's... Uh, uh, we're, we're training other people as well as we're learning every day from the animals uh, in our training facility. Yeah, well, I I think that, you know, you guys are doing a great job, and, and that's one thing that, you know, I really think that your methods, um, while they, you know, there really isn't a shortcut with your methods. You know, I'm sure that many people are tempted to go to the, you know, the conventional training, if you will, you know, the, the e-collars, the, the choke chains, you may be able to achieve, you know, quick results with those things. But I think about a dog like Goldie who, I mean, you know, Roger, that before we got Goldie, I had a, I had a chocolate lab uh, for 12 and a half years, and, and uh, he was a real hard-driving, uh, strong-willed male, kind of typical for a, a big chocolate male and uh kind of like you kind of like, like me and and i'll tell you what this <laughs> this girl <laughs> that we brought home from your place is so different she's just so much more pliable so much more sensitive than chewy was but i think that if you would just put a e-collar on her and start you know barking commands and pushing buttons you you could ruin her really fast you know i think it's been much better off to give her the time to get 
you know, really comfortable with the family and with me. And I've seen changes really up until I think we've had her for about four months now. And really, I would say it's in the last month that I think that our relationship has developed her comfort level with me and getting used to all just my mannerisms, my tones, my idiosyncrasies. You know, she knows now really, you know, that nothing bad is going to happen. And I see a big change in her behavior and her willingness to go ahead and do things and feel like the freedom to go ahead and, and do things that maybe, you know, it took her that much time to really kind of get completely settled, you know, with, with what's going on there. I call that she's getting you trained. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> sure. But I mean, I think that's probably pretty normal, isn't it, for a lot of these dogs to, you know, that, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. But once you get that comfort level established between yourself and the animal, then the training, you know, really starts to, to take off. Yeah, it, it, it really does. I mean, it's uh, uh, when, when the dogs leave here, you know, they, they've lived here in their first four months of their life. When they move to a new home, it's, you know, new uh, conditions, uh, new weather, new people, new food, I mean, everything. Yeah, there's a period of adjustment, but uh, they're looking to bond up with someone and become part of the family member, uh, uh, part of the family. So, uh, you know, they all go through some kind of a transitional period, no matter, even the older dogs will do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and Goldie's so funny, too, you know. Definitely, she definitely sees me as the alpha because she will wrestle with the boys and, and, you know, carry on with them and jump on each other and even a little bit so with Lindell. But if I try to get down there and join in on the play, she immediately just comes over and lays down by my side and just looks up at me like, Dad, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to do that with you. I can't challenge you. It's funny. She's just real sweet, though. I mean, she comes over and she just wants me to pat her head and, and, and say, you know, that's fine, but she does not want to fight <laughs> with me. Sure. Sure. I, I think another area, you know, I'd like to touch on, you know, before we run out of time is, depending upon what part of the country that you're, you're hunting horns in mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, your expectations. Uh, these dogs, uh, if if you're up north, uh, say in Wisconsin or wherever you might be in Minnesota, and you're hunting horns in a lot of snow, okay, you actually have to train your dog to hunt in the snow because they hunt differently in the snow than they do on uh, dry land. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, the way to think about this, if I'm training avalanche uh, dogs, these are dogs that hunt for people under snow, up to you know, 20 feet under snow, you don't start with the body on uh, 20 feet down. You start with the body on the surface, and then you work the, dog, the person down. Okay, And when the dog gets uh, uh, really uh, acclimated to it, they can f- find people buried uh, in incredible de- uh, depths. But they have to be taught that. So if you're turning, you're hunting horns in the snow, you actually have to teach the dog, just like the avalanche dog, to be able to scent those uh, antlers under snow. And uh, the one of the dogs I talked about earlier uh, that I sold to the cranberry grower in Wisconsin uh, is uh, I got a, a letter, an email from him, uh, and it said that. Uh, the year before, the dog had had some trouble finding the horns in the snow, so he decided to start working the dog in the snow pr- prior to the last season. And uh, 
he had he took out twelve horns and uh, planted them, or seven horns and planted them, uh, and then he went on vacation to uh, Hawaii and uh, was gone two weeks. When he came back, it had snowed. I think he said about eight inches, and when he took his dog out, he said he had no idea as to where he had hid those horns, and the dog found all eight of the horns in the, in the snow. And so the, the dogs can find horns in the snow. Uh, they can also find them underwater. And once again, it's a, it's a training process in which we have three or four dogs. I think that when Chris was here... Yes, uh, you showed, showed that. He showed me, and the, I actually saw one of Roger's dogs dive down in the pond uh, on his farm and, and pull an antler out of there. So that was kind of unbelievable, to be honest with you. <laughs> sure, sure. But, but, the, but those dogs, once you're there, they're trained to do those kinds of things. And uh, you, you, uh, one of the ways you might do is you start in shallow water and then get to deeper water. We uh, sent a, a wonderful, wonderful dog uh, to, uh, uh, to Texas to a very good friend of mine, uh, Russ Rutledge, and uh, his dog's name is Rush Limpaw, and Rush is uh, the diving dog. Uh, uh, Russ has a, a, a glass swimming pool that's 10 foot deep, and you can take an antler and throw it into 10 feet of water, and the dog will swim out and dive just like a human and go down, and you can see the dog through the side of the pool all the way to the bottom pick up the horn, bring the horn, and come back up to the surface. Now, that's kind of a retrieving thing, but when you think about it, and I, I often wonder how the dog knows, first of all, how to swim down, because that's not a natural thing. Mm-mm. The other thing is the dog, when he swims down, if you watch him, he's swimming with his eyes open. So how does he know to keep his eyes open? But the thing that's, that amazes me the most how long does the dog know, how does the dog know how long it can hold its breath? Because let's say that the pool, let's say the pool is twelve foot deep instead of ten. Okay, is the dog going to go down and at twelve feet take a big gulp of water and drown? But it doesn't seem to work that way. This dog looks like a, I mean, it's unbelievable, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. so proud of, of of that dog. As the uh... As the like the the, the weight loss uh, product commercials say, Roger, your results may vary. <laughs> you know, <Yes>. so <laughs> uh, my Goldie may not prove to be the the fifteen foot antler diving dog, but I would certainly be more than happy if she can just be a uh, a good solid uh, hunting companion on dry ground. And uh, I I think that we're off to a great start with your help, and I know that this is a a sport that is getting more and more popular all the time. And you have a lot of resources, Roger, for people who are interested in learning more about antler dogs at your website, which is antlerdogs.com. And people can see pictures of you and your dogs and, and Sharon and Amy and watch some videos and order uh, DVDs. And your contact information is there as well. So there's a lot of good uh, information available there and I know that you're always willing to talk to people like me who have uh, stupid questions about training their antler dogs you like to be a helpful resource to those of us who aren't as knowledgeable as you and and I appreciate that Roger well there there are there are no stupid questions because this is a sport that's just now coming of age and uh, 
getting back to Rush Limpaw a little bit, my daughter Amy trained him, and she trained him to, to do the, the antler water diving trick. And uh, so I always like to give uh, all of my, either my wife, my daughter, the people that we work with recognition for the contributions that they're giving because almost on a daily basis I'm getting emails from people that uh, are, are telling me about the experiences they're having with the, with their dogs. I got an email last night from a, we sold a dog to a gentleman in, in Tennessee and the dog's name is Buster Brown. And uh, Buster is uh, not only a horn dog, but he works in the church and he works in the, uh, uh, in the nursery with uh, the children but he's also a phenomenal blood trail dog, and uh, he was tell- in the email he was telling me about uh, about a month ago they shot a, a deer at, uh, right at, at dark, and him and his buddy looked half the night for it before they remembered that they had a blood trail dog. They went back in the morning, put the dog on the track. The dog disappeared and was gone about ten minutes. They heard the dog barking over at the river. They went over to the river, and this deer they shot had gone into the river and drowned, and it was hung up in some brush out in the water, and the dog was out there trying to retrieve the, the deer out of out of the river. Oh, my so goodness. It, yeah, almost every day we're getting stories like that, and it just, well, just like the, the, the Christmas card I got from your wife, I tell you, that, that really touched me, and uh, he was talking about how Goldie sits at the door waiting for the boys to come home from school, and uh, uh, that's what I think is, uh, in every every. A uh, child needs to grow up with a dog that, uh, that has that kind of uh, relationship with. So it's great stuff. Well, I appreciate it, Roger. Like I said, I, I know that this antler dog uh, deal is getting more and more popular all the time. It always generates quite a response whenever, you know, we run any articles on, on this sort of topic. And the timing of this is perfect because here it is early February of a winter that really never was. Most places in the country have very little, if any, snow. And uh, the, the bucks uh, are dropping their antlers right now. And uh, it's going to be a, a great time to get out in these next uh, weeks and months ahead here to, to get out and, and enjoy this. So um, appreciate your time today. And uh, I wish you the continued success with this. Uh, thank you for for what you've done for me and my family and we'll continue to keep you posted on our progress and uh and i'm sure that you'll uh continue to uh keep the world uh, posted on the things that you're learning too through your website and uh, uh it's just been a just been a real good time and, and i want to thank you again for it hey and i want to thank you and all your readers and all your listeners and i wish you guys uh, the best of 2012 and god bless thank you very much roger You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's Hard-Hitting Access Arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.